and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I have really enjoyed our conversations already with my next guest, who's going to introduce himself in a moment, because it's just a little bit different and a little bit edgy, a little bit unusual, not prepared to go with the flow, but to challenge orthodoxy, which is why his business has been so successful already, breaking the mold of how people usually do things. Without further ado, I'll let him introduce himself. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, I'm Tim Creswick. I'm the CEO and, and founder of Warboss. We are a telecoms company, so we're a fiber company that specializes and has built a very large fiber optic network in London um, solely to serve uh, London's businesses. Fantastic. Well, look, congratulations on your success thus far. Um, we were we were talking, Tim, about um, I normally am interested in a couple of other CEOs like yourself that you have found inspiring. But already the edginess was there because you went, well, I'm not so sure. I got specific people. There's a bit of a patchwork of different qualities certain people like Elon Musk has. And then maybe it's teams that I admire. So so take me where you've been inspired or what bits and pieces of tasks that people have done have inspired you. That's right. Well, I, I think, um, uh, yeah, for, for me, um, as, I, as I, I think briefly shared with you, I was I was taught from a young age to to kind of when when giving feedback criticize the task not the person um and so for me i think i've ended up in this place where where i also admire the task and not the person and so i yeah i, I really enjoy i've always enjoyed cherry picking those those things um reading a lot of books um talking through in the last week or so about people i admire and what i keep coming back to is actually the very specific moments that i admire and whether that's phil knight from nike things he's done whether mm. it's the moments that you see those sort of now quite dated interviews with Elon Musk when he was starting SpaceX and people thought he was totally mad, but you realize there was a, there was some, some glints of, of pure genius in, in what he was doing. And that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean that everything he's done is great. And I, and I think for me, that's, that, that's how, how I, how I start to piece it together. And um, so you're not going to start naming everything X by chance, eh? You know, no. fi fiber x and your children are all called x and y it's really um, the perfect week for that isn't it yeah i think it is i think it is but um what about teams because as you said to me i really liked that aspect and it, it resonated with uh, uh, the power of listening to, to listen to somebody else so that you are utterly irrelevant but yet so important because the skill with which you're listening ignites their thinking to do their best and you made this point about really good leaders. It's not about them at all. It's actually about the teams. And Sun Tzu, two and a half thousand years ago, the greatest leaders, the people said, we did it ourselves. So you you had a couple of teams that really stuck in your mind historically. Do you want to just say a bit about it and why you admired them? Yeah, I, mean, I, th I think mostly because they were quite early influences for me. But, um, you know, weirdly they keep coming up and one is one is the uh the apollo the apollo program right that got man on the moon um to me that's that's so that's such a rich tapestry of interesting and uh, interesting lessons and case studies and so many layers either on the this sort of huge scale of how can jfk launch this enormous um, and an incredibly expensive program that involves hundreds of thousands of people all the way down to the details of you know how how very small parts of that worked and and things like how the mission control center operated and i think there's just so much value in what we can learn from that and and another one that sticks in my mind again because i read the book at a young age was um uh the, the collection of essays on software engineering by by fred brooks um a mythical man month and and I'm sure the concept of the mythical man month is is sort of known to a lot of a lot of people um, anecdotally, you know, the idea that nine women can't produce a baby in one month. Um, right. It's this, it's this, the same idea. Um, and 
and I think that one stuck with me because I read it when I was maybe 17. Mm -hmm. But um, that was the, the impetus for the book was they had an enormous software project in I think about the 70s that was uh, hugely behind schedule. And, uh, and they just kept throwing more and more resources at it. And from that, a series, they started to learn a series of lessons. And, and then he wrote, wrote a, a wider selection of essays that is that are really quite seminal works on how software engineering works today, but applies to so many other types of projects. And, and actually, what the team delivered was, was, was world leading, but they started from, you know, almost certain failure. And I think I think that's just really interesting to me. But it's, as you said, it's it, for me, it's about what the teams achieved. And I, I sort of admire the I admire team high product, you know, sort of high, high output teams, perhaps mm. more than the leaders. And, and I've never been one necessarily to, to idolize leaders. Mm. Uh, it's interesting you talk about sort of the lessons learned. And I, I think the really best leaders and teams combo is where they have after action reviews every time something's gone well or not gone well that at the University of Michigan a professor who taught me talked about teachable moments. So what have we learned? What are we going to do differently? And then in the IBM context where I worked at IBM, the John Watson story about, you know, the guy who'd um, taken over from the previous CEO and the previous CEO was failure was not an option. It's good news. And that's all he wanted to hear. So they'd kept quiet about all the software problems that they had uh, until John came in and he came and downloaded his problem on him and said, so I suppose you're going to fire me. He said, well, how much does this cost? He said, well, about $265,000. He said, so I suppose, you know, that's it for me. As it said, no, he said, why would I fire you? He said, I've just invested $265,000 in your <laughs> development. Go away with your team, work it out. What have you learned? And what are you going to do differently? And and the solutions to that crisis that they'd had for the last six to 12 months, they made 2.8 million more rather from the loss. And he went on and became the CEO in his turn after John Watson at IBM. But it, it's that that willingness to let people learn and make mistakes. What have you learned? What are you going to do differently? Which I so, I so like. And also, I was um, listening, a guest I've got coming up, Colonel Stuart Tootle, who was the CEO of 3Power. Now, completely different scenario, but middle of Afghanistan. All sorts of things going horribly wrong. But after every operation, whether it went well or not, they would review it as a team. Mm -hmm. Whether you're a colonel or a private soldier, a Tom, you, you have a voice. What worked well? What should we do better? And, and, and I think that that willingness to constantly learn and review even the successes that, that there must be something from it is that something you in your culture do a lot in Vobos? Uh, yeah absolutely and i think but but perhaps we approach it a slightly different way I, th I think firstly you have the foundational um kind of requirement that for that to even work what you have to have is is the sense of safety right people have to feel you know you, you talk about sort of the most junior uh the junior ranks being able to speak up or being able to speak honestly well that that comes from from essentially creating that that feeling of safety, um, and that has to be that absolutely has to be authentic. And you could arrive that a number of ways. Like one, it's it's by being very consistent in the way that you respond to, to negative feedback as a leader, um, and as an organisation, how you handle it and how you approach honesty and openness. But it but also is top down, right? That the leaders have to leaders have to be authentic. They have to be they have to be honest. They have to seem relatable. Um, and you have to lead by example, which means you, you also have to do the same, right? Like, so we're back to this wearing a mask thing of, of you know, you have to be an authentic person. Um, but then the other thing is creating these opportunities for feedback. And I think, you know, in the example you've given, that's probably, that's probably appropriate in the sense that, that the main focus um, and certainly the kind of risk to, to life and limb exists predominantly during a mission right and then you debrief that mission and there's already a kind of a structure around around that and so it naturally creates these opportunities where you would do that the difficulty we would have in, in a business like ours is is there aren't these really clear set points where you would say okay that's that's the that's the moment to give feedback on something so so then what you have to try and do is induce these moments of, of this sort of culture of continuous feedback and i think what you have to to, to sort of think about is when people are busy and particularly in a growth organization um 
they don't want to do that because they're so busy trying to solve problems. So that takes time. So you also have to build a culture of people understanding the benefit of having of having done it. And there's a few tools we use to to achieve that. Well, well before you, I'd love to hear the tools in a moment. You've triggered for me a, a sort of live situation for me where I do a lot of um, offsites with CEOs and their teams. And there's a whole mixture of different things that we can do, but a few are, are real nuggets that get high levels of trust in the team where there's feedback and they can uh, deal with issues um, such as, you know, they might be staring a bit about their personal stories in an appropriate way in the right kind of setting in a safe environment. And that this is staying in the room. It's not to be shared with anybody else. And you can't even go and discuss the topic that someone might've shared about their personal life that shaped them as the leader they are today without them raising it with you. You can't go and raise it with them. They, they've just said it and it's over. Mm -hmm. But you therefore, that level of vulnerability allows, only the strong can be vulnerable. This this idea that vulnerability is weakness, I think is a very yesteryear kind of thing without people pouring out their whole, spilling their guts all over the place and sobbing in the middle of the supermarket floor and everybody else uh, stroking them and <laughs> saying, I'm terribly sorry. And, you know, we must uh, go back to your childhood. But, you know, you and I both had therapy. We, we know the value of it. I'm not talking about that or, or dissing that. What I'm talking about is when there is a, a, a an opening up by people, particularly led by the CEO who goes first and shares something about themselves. I've seen this work incredibly well a number of times. And everybody else goes, ah, I see the level at which we're at now. If he or she is prepared to be open and vulnerable, then I'm not going to skim across the surface and make something up and pretend it's all fine. I'm, I'm going to share something so people know me better. They they. They're not one to judge me. They, if if they, well, we all judge people, but they, they, they're prepared to understand. There's much more to me than meets the eye. The next one is where they give three hundred and sixty feedback, swivel chair in the middle. It's always no one's comfortable doing this. Everybody hates doing this, <laughs> but it's in, incredibly helpful. And that each person in turn sits to receive feedback from the others, and they have just a minute in, in which they say, "This is one behaviour." that we'd love you to, I'd love personally would love you to continue to do. It really works well. And here's a behavior that I think you should either stop doing or start doing this behavior, which will really help you be more successful and it will contribute to the, the trust and the performance of the team. Uh, there's a one team out of uh, many of the others go, oh, we're not sure we want to do that because there's not enough trust. So we don't want to do the 360 feedback and we don't want to really start sharing our business problems that we've got with each other. And I go, that's the problem, guys. The fact that you're not even prepared to have a setting, as you as you described, create an opportunity. I'm giving you an opportunity to give each other feedback to, for the growth and for your development, a learning opportunity with good intention. If your intention is evil, not right thing. But but what's your thoughts about that? Doesn't that worry you if they're not prepared to even have that at an offsite because it isn't good enough trust yet? Oh, completely. Well, and and but I but I've been there as well, right? So I th I think there was a, a moment for me um maybe seven eight years ago where i sort of concluded that um i i have as 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 the ceo and at that time you know found a ceo um I, i'm afforded the huge privilege of actually i can be anyone i want no one's going to fire me right um and and i sort of started this process it was it was at some point into me starting to go to therapy that this was a, an issue I was thinking about. And it was, why am I, do I feel the need to behave a certain way at work? Because actually I could be anyone I want to be at work. If I feel like I'm the boss who turns up in a t-shirt, then I'm the guy who turns up in a t-shirt. It doesn't matter, right? And and I had these sort of, I'd worked the prior 10 years, always feeling like I had to put on a bit of a show. Um, and we could talk about why that is. And, and actually some of that is valid in a small business, maybe. But I, I then kind of got to this idea that what I wanted to do was close the gap between who I am in my personal life and who I was at work. If only because what, one of the things I was learning in therapy was like this process was exhausting. You know, being two people um, was exhausting. And if anyone in the business or if anyone has the opportunity to, to just unify those two selves, it's surely the, the guy who who's in charge right so so that was my experiment was let's do that and and then sort of <laughs> to your point the immediate roadblock i hit was sort of arriving at work the next day and thinking about this and going i don't want to share like in order to do that what i need to share i don't want to share with three or four of you i i 
And, and what it really did for me was it shone a light on the fact that there were a couple of people in the business who really shouldn't have been there. Um, you know, they were, they were the sort of people that would say something nasty about you behind your back as soon as you left the room or whatever it is, you know, and, and you sort of sometimes you tolerate these people in your teams because you think that's the way life is. And, and so what it did to me was completely change or dramatically change that some of the sort of the value structure around how I thought about what people were contributing. And it's not just about output, it's about how they engage with the team. And so uh, it, it was for me, the journey was there was a step before the step you've mentioned in a way, it's the feedback, the feedback comes when you have the trust, but the trust comes when you have the right people. And, and so uh, I very quickly realized that those people needed to find happiness elsewhere. And, mm -hmm. you know, and we, and I exited them from the business and that was step one. And then step two was right now I take off the mask and now I can be open because the people who are here, I feel like I, I can, I can, uh, I want to trust them. They're, they're not. It's because it's not about, I don't care. If anything I tell you, you can, you know, they can share to anyone they want to share to. That's absolutely fine. Mm. Um, but it's the way in which they do it. That's the problem. And, and I think, yeah. So, yeah, it stay with that. Cause I think that's really interesting because, uh, what I often do before an offsite is I talk to all the leaders in the senior leadership team, uh, coaching the CEO throughout the year, but get to know the people uh, he or she are, are working with. And what was interesting sort of partway through a number of the interviews was I, I started to get back from somebody else, some feedback on the way I was running the interviews. You know, oh, I'm not very comfortable that you're doing this or this. And I like, it, it, we just thought we were just talking about the, the leader, but you're actually coaching us. And I go, yeah, because we're going to be in an SLT offsite together. I'm going to be working with you all. I'm a systemic team coach. Oh, well, no, we just thought we'd just talk about him and, and we can give you feedback on him. But they didn't tell me at the time. I asked for some feedback and, you know, that kind of stuff at the end of it, you know, what's working well, that kind of stuff. And, um, but they never said anything to me at the time, but they do triangulation. You can't cross triangulation. Well, triangulation is I might have an issue with you, Tim, but I don't tell you what the concern I have or what my need is. I talk to Lee, my wife, and then she eventually mentions something in a roundabout way that I just sort of heard, Tim, that maybe you might have yeah. done this and upset a few people. And you go, well, well who said it? Well, no, I can't tell you. I, I can't really can't tell you. So then this, this sort of this sort of smoldering smoke spreads through the organization in a sort of toxic way are they after me and it's who's like, behind me it's like and sort it, of sentiment back channeling or something it's, it's it just yeah. it, it but so so being a yorkshireman i i'd rather someone says directly to me what they're thinking whether they're happy or not what what i can do what can i do with this but we've got to avoid the triangulation and of course you as ceo the fish rots from the head. So if you allow triangulation and you whisper to someone else about a third person that you, you, you want to be nice and you don't want to upset anybody. So you don't say anything bad to them. Like, you know, th they come away from their mid-year review thinking they're doing a good job, but actually you're about on the verge of firing them, but you haven't actually said it because you, you don't want to upset because they've been a friend of yours and you hired them and that kind of thing. So uh, it, it's one of those invidious things that unless you as the CEO have these direct one-to-one -one, courageous conversations and listen a lot more. Many people just talk, really listen to what they want to get and what their aspirations and hopes are. Then it creates this very political organization. No, I think, I think that's absolutely right. And it, and it all comes from, but, but I think, I, th I think, I hope we get a lot of that. We come by it very honestly in the sense that we, we try and make those conversations really continue, you know, like continual, um, you know, and so the, you know, it's, it's, it's not always possible, but to the extent that you can break, break away from these sort of artificial feedback periods and cycles. Um, and we've done a lot of things to, to try and facilitate that. Um, then, then that makes it, that makes it easier to train people into mm. the behaviors of, okay, these are team members you can trust. And sometimes it's about giving people the safety of saying, look, this isn't about firing you or not firing you. This is about, this is how high high performing teams work. You know, I was very lucky to participate in some very, very competitive sports and, you know, work with exceptional coaches. And sometimes sometimes the little message people need is like, if we were a sports team, we wouldn't tolerate this. If we were a sports team, you know, we would call this out and you would and we would call it out absolutely head on. And it wouldn't be about you being a bad person or you getting dropped from the team. It would be we need you to stop doing that 
because it's slowing us all down. Yeah. Do you remember the the book? Does it make the boat go faster? Yeah. So yeah, I've, not, I've not read it, but I. But, but it's, okay. So but the, it's literally the, uh, the metaphor I'm thinking the, of. Exactly. Uh, the Sydney so, yeah. Olymp the Sydney Olympic yeah. team, yeah. Uh, and they won by 0.8 of a second beating the Australians, 0.8 of a second. So everything they did had to be about, does it make the boat go faster? And I think what you raise is a good point. It's about the whole performance of, in your case, Vorbos, uh, in other case, each individual team, but then then the organization, that if they see it as this behavior will help all of us, and and let's have a way of having continuous feedback so it's not so strange and so forced. I mean, doing feedback at an offsite when they just are not doing it with each other. They've done it to the CEO and there's been an employee engagement survey, but then they haven't really done it with each other. And so they don't really want to address the issue, but they're avoiding it and not addressing it. So what I came across when I was a visiting professor at a, at a business school uh, teaching on the MBA program was uh, one of the students explained that what their tech company did was they had a, a bit of software on their phones. And every time they went into a sales pitch or they they did a bit of software development together, at the end of that, they go, right, let's just do a quick update on each other against our values. How do you rate each other? And so they'd all rate each other about what they contributed and what's working well, even better if. And then that goes into their annual appraisal. It's just- Sounds a, sounds a bit exhausting. It's very quick, very quick <laughs> and very speedy to do. But the point was, it then became cumulative over, over the year. So when you came to do the mid-year review, you were not going, let's just, uh, uh, the thing you did last week, I remember about that. I've forgotten what happened six months ago, but last week you did really well or you did badly. So that's how I'm going to judge you for the last six months. But it was just accumulation of various things. But what it meant, it wasn't such a big thing because it was a very quick, took two minutes to do on your phone, on each other. And actually it's a rather nice process to do and you could you can share um so it's just one of those things but let's um to, on, to be a, a touch contrarian on that one i think so where where i've become a bit of a zealot it's around how we spend time organizationally we actually have the fun tool that that um rod our coo knocked up off the back of me and him joking around the fact that we had the data and we should someone should do this and then over the weekend he just did it which was we, we now have a tool that sends out uh, the cost for every single meeting in the organization because oh, we have yes yes we have our own HR and payroll system that we built so that we can do cool things like this. And then we've integrated that anyway with the calendar system. So anytime a meeting booking happens, a message comes out in our internal, uh, we use a, a different product, but think of it like Slack. That's just a secure version of it internally. Um, and, and we just get a post telling us what the cost of the meeting is based on the salaries of the people attending and the meeting duration. Um, so I, I kind of look at these little tiny sort of, and, and it's, it's, these these sort of little things that, that cost tons and tons of time um, cumulatively. So so again, that's one of the reasons. So we don't do quarterly um, annual or annual feedback cycles. We don't do any of that. Um, and actually, you know, I sort of alluded to one of the tools earlier, but one of the tools we have is I make uh, or we make every manager bonus their team on a monthly basis. So everyone in our organization is is bonus monthly. And it forces these much more compressed feedback cycles. So you don't have the problem of, oh, I can't remember what you were doing. So instead of having this sort of crutch of saying, okay, well, I now need to document all the feedback so that I can then review it once a year. We just say, nope, review it monthly. And then the feedback cycle is compressed, which means that you're driving the behaviors at the time. So, mm, so like yeah, that. for me, it's, it's how do you do what you're saying, but how do you do it with the minimal time cost? Mm, I know. I really like that one. And and when you look at the price of each of those meetings, what initially did you think and, and how did it change your behavior as an organization? Did you mean like after I stopped crying or? Yeah, after um, you stopped crying about yeah, how expensive yeah, these meetings are yeah. and, and it's a complete waste of everybody's time and it costs you a fortune. No, well, it's it's not. A complete, I think it's 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 it would be lovely to sort of jump to that conclusion and be like, it's all a waste of time. But but of course it isn't. It's just about context. It's about saying like that's fine, but also like let's just be aware and be conscious of the cost of, of these things. And and it was a, an interesting exercise, right? Like we've we've started doing on some of our meeting agendas now, and we print them out. We just put at the top, um, you know, objectives of the meeting, cost of the meeting, and it's just on the top of the sheet that everyone has. So you know, you're just you're encouraging people. I suppose what I would rather is I'm I'm all for spending money. I've always been, you know give people the best chairs, the best laptops, the best computer screens, 
give them the best tools to succeed. And if they want to have really expensive meetings, have really expensive meetings, but please derive the value from it. You know, if you want to have a £5,000 meeting, show me that you got five or £10,000 of value from it. That, that's, that's my ask. And so I think it's, if you don't have the metric, how do you know if you got, if you got the value? Yeah. Do you wear wearable tech? Knowing that you love your competitive sports, uh, yeah. What yeah. what are you what are you wearing? What, I uh, so I I'm twenty four seven with a with a whoop. Uh, yeah, I used I to have whoop, and I've gone yeah, to so the I, aura the aura ring now. I, I use the bicep strap because I don't want oh, to okay. have two things on my wrist, so I, yeah. I wear it up here. And how's um, that? Does that bother you? No, I, I mean I think it's great because then it's completely unobtrusive, and apparently that's the way you get to the best data anyway. So. Um, ah, I might just, I might, you, you've, you've, this has been playing in my mind for a while. I had Whoop for about four years and then three years ago I went on to the Aura Ring, but that's fine until you start doing a lot of weightlifting, which I do, not heavy weights, but just hit training. Well, actually it sort of started to make this, this finger swell. It's actually, because yeah. of course, when you've got weights against there with a, a ring on that, it's not very good for you. So I'm going to, that's a good idea. I, I find it's like, and then sleeping and things, it works really well. But for me, the, the whoop is really good because it, it works well with, so I, I do motorsport and, and you don't have the ability like you would have with a lot of devices to start and stop the activity. Mm -hmm. um, you're not in control of the time. And so it's really great because it just passively records that and then you can tag the activity afterwards. And it's one of the only ones that does that really well in, in my view. So mm. it's actually a really helpful tool for, for that. And then for sleep, it's not very disruptive. But, but yeah, yeah, like it, again, absolutely. Like to the extent that I can be data-driven about it, why, why wouldn't I? I know some and people is it, is it integrated with Apple Watches and things like that or have they not integrated yet? Uh, it's integrated into Apple Health now, yeah. So okay. I don't okay. use the Apple Watch, but, but yeah, you, you, can, you can pick all that stuff up. And, and so it, it's a predominant use is like sort of sleep and recovery for me is really, really yeah, helpful. That, that, that's um, what I find so very interesting. Have you found the great secret? Here we are, we're swapping data. I, I, I did recently, you've done your competitive sports, a 500 kilometer cycle ride to raise money for Help for Heroes and my wife's charity, uh, which helps the victims of violence against women and girls. And uh, we care deeply about. Anyway, but it was five days in a row of quite intense cycling between the sort of mm -hmm. World War One, World War Two battlefield. And I'm not a cyclist. So I'd only picked up the bike seven right. weeks beforehand, a brand new bike. <laughs> All right. Trained hard for seven weeks. But the whole effect was not very good on my recovery and my sleep, which were shocking, particularly five days in a row of cycling up and down hills and things doing 65 to 85 miles. And so you sort of you learn what is good and what is not. But what's what's been your learning about getting the heart rate variance up? Because mine in my 60s now is quite low. And I'm thinking, what do I do to get up the HRV? Yeah, I mean, for me, it, certainly this year has been a bit difficult. So I'm I'm still kind of working on on my overall level of fitness. And as I said, with the motorsport, that's it's quite difficult because I sort of have this peaky requirement for fitness. Um, but actually, you know, it's quite hard to find the time to to train for that. So from an HRV standpoint, like it's okay. Um, but I'm I'm mostly I can link a lot of performance to sleep. So I'm really, and I've been for years quite obsessive about sleep. You know, I, I have, I think I told you previously, but you know, in, in 2020, I was dealing with navigating the company through a pandemic. Um, I was in the middle of a four year, quite acrimonious divorce and in and out of court hearings. Um, I had uh, some multi-million pound litigation going with um, with the business that um, with, with with essentially a non-paying customer, um, and we had um, I moved house twice, um, and we also in that period sold the business and raised two hundred fifty million, um, all in the space of twelve months, um, and I had some of the best sleep of my life uh, in that year, right. and and I think because I took it so seriously, um, you know, and, and I think, um, yeah, for me, that's the, that's the biggest determinant of performance actually. Yeah. And, and those listening will, uh, benefit from the book that I'm sure you've read too, why we sleep by Matthew Walker, mm -hmm. um, who is pretty, um, sound on this topic. I even took myself to Cambridge, um, to the Royal Papworth and got completely wired up and watched oh, my camera. The, wow, okay. I did the, the sleep study yeah. and, uh, you know, about the, the, the movement of my feet and my legs and what was going on and what was happening to me during sleep. So that was fascinating just because I was so interested. 
what actually was going on during my sleep. Uh, I now even wear a mandibular device to try and stop any um, uh, sleep apnea. Uh, and I think it, it does have a does have an impact. But uh, fascinating that we do. I'm really interested just for the benefits of everybody listening. They might go, you know, tell me more about the boss. I don't I don't know. How did you start it up? So do you want to just give us a, a, a five minute thumbnail sketch of how you decided to set up a business to build fiber for business yeah. in London? So, right. So it's, it's, it's kind of 18 years in five minutes. But yeah, mm -hmm. uh, well, I'll do my best. Um, no, so, so my background, I suppose, was engineering and software development. Mm -hmm. um, uh, at least that's what I kind of always say. Uh, I've always been fascinated with how things work. I had started coding and playing with software at a pretty young age. Um, and, uh, and then all through my, uh, all the way through university, I was, uh, that was kind of summer jobs to the extent possible. I was, I was trying to do well internships. I had summer jobs that paid and I was doing internships that involved software. So I, I was pretty early on. I figured that out. Um, I studied engineering with computer science. So that also gave me a really good formal background in on sort of both sides. But I think for, first and foremost, I see myself as a, as, as an engineer really, um, and then uh, I had a job, a summer job, working for a large law firm building internal software. And, um, and that was a sort of turning point for me where I realized, you know, I was doing extremely boring software projects for them that had very high business value. So things that when you scaled them out, you know, over three, 4,000 fee earners globally, and you're talking about saving them little bits of time, um, these are million dollar projects, but they only take a few weeks to produce potentially. And, and it was, for me, that was a, a big lesson in understanding. It wasn't what, it wasn't about the value of my time. It was about what the product was, was worth to the customer. So the original concept for Vorboss, for the business I started was essentially to be a software consultancy, to build software for companies that were much smaller because I, I kind of knew independently I was never going to sell to multinationals or huge companies or they would have an in-house resource or they would already have a, a way of thinking about this capability. But the idea was there were businesses that were sort of small businesses, small and medium businesses who weren't thinking about it, didn't have an in-house capability, wouldn't have known where to start and, and were an untapped market and were relatively easy to sell to because you had a, you know, owner, operator, key decision maker kind of environment. So that was the, the, the original plan. Um, I uh, failed to make any money doing that um, for quite some time. It turns out that basically is just a resource management business. Um, it's very similar to just being any other type of consultancy. It's, it's um, you know, and if you have a gap between projects, where you know I got within a year I had I think eight employees eight developers working for me um, if you ended up with a two-week gap because a project got shifted suddenly you're just looking at this like massive cost on you know payroll cost and nothing to do with it and and so that was really difficult um, along came the financial crisis 2009 uh, 2008 2009 um, and customers are sort of dropping like flies but one thing that was really interesting was we'd started providing a hosting platform what you would now think of as a cloud platform to run some of these business applications that we've been building so we were doing things like kind of productivity tools crm systems those kinds of things and um uh but we were also hosting them for our customers and this was just providing this kind of ongoing rental income and you still got to a point in 2009 when you looked at it and you went well this isn't much revenue but it is the most profitable thing we do. So 2009, I made the tough decision to say, okay, we don't build any more software for customers. We'll, we'll build software for ourselves um, and, and kind of always sharpen our own tools, um, but actually let's become an infrastructure business. And over the next five, seven years, we got very, very good at that. We grew out our data center infrastructure. We brought on, you know, having learned how to do this very reliably, we, you know, we ended up providing essentially what you can think of as private cloud infrastructure to, everything from well-known e-commerce sites to, uh, you know, pension and payroll providers, um, uh, small independent uh, banks, all sorts of organizations that basically had this kind of dependency. Um, and we did very well in the startup and kind of tech sector, particularly because what a lot of people forget is Amazon uh, AWS didn't enter the UK until I think 2017. So prior to that, if you were a young tech company and you want to use all the latest AWS tools, you either had to host it in Ireland or Germany, or you had to come to someone like us who would essentially do private cloud for you. So, uh, so that was a really, really good business 
through 2017, but we always knew the writing was on the wall. Those guys were eventually coming. And so we diversified into con connectivity. You know, we looked at that as a trend. Um, I would say there's a, there's a really great example. There's a fiber company in the US Midwest um, that it came, was born out of a video rental store. It's brilliant. So they were a video rental store and they went, the internet's gonna destroy our business. What's the best way to hedge? They decided build a fiber network in their town. If, you, if Netflix was gonna kill them, they wanted to be the conduit to Netflix. Um, and it's a mm. family owned fiber company, it used to be a video rental store. And, and our story is actually really similar. We looked at it and went, Amazon, Microsoft and Google are gonna kill our cloud business. That's 100% guaranteed. Um, and while the giants are trading blows, all their customers are going to are going to have an increased dependency on on connectivity, and that's one thing that they can't commoditize. We know they're never going to enter that market, so we started getting really good at connectivity, and that culminated in us starting to then, you know, we started figuring out how do you do the leading edge of that? How do you provide really high bandwidth to the most demanding customers because that was being poorly catered for, but using other people's fiber, so using existing fiber, but just kind of working with it in a different way. And, and actually doing a lot more of the kind of client management that was lacking. And then uh, by sort of 2017, there was a regulatory change that kind of enabled us to start looking at, uh, sorry, 2019, um, at, at deploying our own cables um, that made it much, much easier to do this using existing infrastructure. And so we were one of the first to sort of jump on that and figure out how do you really make that work? Um, we learned a lot very quickly. Um, and then through 2020, as I previously mentioned, we, we then um, raised just over a quarter of a billion pounds to really scale that opportunity and, and sort of take the fight to, um, to largely uh, what is OpenReach, the, the former monopoly. Um, and, uh, and so we went then from, you know, 25, 25 people, I think, in 2019 to close to 400 now in 2023. Mm. Well, I mean, congratulations. It's a, it's a hell of a story. And I, I particularly love that one about the video rental then became it's amazing, isn't it? Network. It's a great story. And I'm just thinking here I am in, um, you know, Lincolnshire, uh, near Grantham. And, and really, the only person I can rely on is BT OpenReach to give me about 64 megabyte of connectivity and downwards. But it's mm -hmm. often it's very unreliable and suddenly it drops out. I haven't got any choice really. I, this is all I can do. Are you, are you guys ever going to come out to here? And you know, I'll, I'll sign up. You know, when are you going to come? Yeah, exactly. Well, so so we get the question a lot, and the, the first thing you have to understand about the enterprise connectivity market, um, it, it maps pretty closely to kind of enterprise activity in the UK. But about just under seventy percent of the entire enterprise fibre market, so that's businesses buying fibre, is is in central London. Um, it's, it's certainly within the M25. Um, so for us, that's clearly where you have to start, that you have to focus there. And then there are diminishing returns as you, as you head out of town, but absolutely we will get there. Uh, it's just, it's just, you know, whether we'll get to, to your, your town, you know, we're not a, we're not a residential provider is always the challenge. Um, but, uh, but yeah, for us, focus on London, solve that problem, deliver a ton of economic value back to the country. Because I think, um, you know, when you look at it, what you see is, is, you know, businesses have been massively held back. And, you know, just just today, you know, the FT's run a run a piece about how much, you know, we're, we're now falling down the rankings. I think we're, we're, we're in the certainly in the bottom 10% of 5G deployments in Europe. Um, and then there's these assessments of how much that's costing us economically due to due to poor connectivity. And so I think, um, you know, and then you just you just imagine we're in a similar situation when it comes to high bandwidth fixed connectivity. Businesses now rely on fiber in exactly the same way they rely on electricity. You know, they simply cannot operate if if there's no internet connection. Mm. Um, and we're and you know and, and the incumbent really doesn't. It, or, or maybe the best way to say it is, the networks they're depending on were built 20 years ago. They weren't designed for that kind of mission criticality and they don't have the capacity. Yeah, uh, and you must be sort of target number one for open reach BT. And they go, oh, go on, really get it for bus because they're undermining us. And uh, Or do they ever collaborate? <laughs> um, that's a really tricky one, right? So so open reach, obviously a heavily regulated entity. Um, we would argue not, not regulated enough. 
uh, we do argue not regulated enough, but but I think um, uh, the to a great extent, like we're not on their radar right now. I think um, the challenge for for BT and OpenReach is Gigabit Britain, right? It's it's the conversation in the House of Commons. It's the Prime Minister, or former Prime Minister, I should say, saying, you know, we're going to deliver Gigabit to every household, and then OpenReach looking at death by a thousand cuts of or BT really looking at death by a thousand cuts of of a hundred fibre to the home companies that have all started up all over the country, building in small towns and villages, trying to corner each little market. So they're they're fighting a war on many, many fronts. Meanwhile, there is this perception that London is a solved problem. And we can get into this discussion about induced demand. My belief fundamentally as a sort of futurist, as a technologist, is you have to you have to build the highway and then the traffic will come. Mm. Um, their view is, well, no one's, you know, there, there are no squeaky wheels, right? No one's complaining, or very few people are complaining, or very few businesses are complaining there's insufficient bandwidth. And it's like, well, that's not how technical capability works. First, we deliver the capability, then people show us how they want to use it, because they don't know yet. And, and I think, so London is seen as a sole problem, because not enough people are screaming. But plenty of people are screaming in, in rural areas. And so, mm you know their focus is really taken away from from our our backyard really yeah so so for for listeners like me uh, and i'm just giving it for the uk for now but it, it's obviously a global issue that want more um bandwidth um if bta breach can't do it there doesn't seem to be any other choice at the moment does there well, it just depends uh, so again depending on what town or village you're in there may well be a a, a new a local one home- a new fiber to the home company that started up that is building there and, and actually on a national level you've got a handful of operators that are are building in dozens and dozens of towns and you know you will be on a list somewhere plenty of us have done the exercise right we did it of you know pulling all the data sources together and doing a load of analysis and you can pretty much what you end up doing is is writing out a list of all the towns in the uk and the order in which one would logically build them um, based on the return on investment you would get yeah. for each one you know we have very good data on you know if you're thinking residential how many homes there are, what's the average income, how far apart are the homes, what's the quality of the existing infrastructure, who's currently selling there, you know, and it's very easy to then to build the business case and say, okay, you know, we think it's, we think it's this. Yeah. So your town will definitely be in someone's model. And, and all it tells me is it's probably not the most lucrative one to build um, if someone's not already doing it, but they will get there eventually. Yeah, yeah, well, no, well, perhaps we ought to get together and uh, club together and see what people can do. Tim, that, that's really interesting. And, and sorry to, to go down a particular avenue because of a, a, an interest. But but I know people listening would be faster to know, particularly because they're all businessmen and leaders. What What is it that you do different in your culture with the way you look after your people? Because just tell us how many people you now have working for you and and, 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 and how you look after them. So we're just about 380 as of today, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and look, it's really complicated. Um, there's no, one of the things I'm most proud of here is that um, if you want to copy us, if our competition wants to come at us, like there's, there's no silver bullet. There's, there's a thousand things they have to do to, to replicate what we do. You know, we've taken marginal gains and gone mad. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and I love that because it, it's, it also translates to this like fantastic attention to detail, right? But first and foremost, there are there are two commitments we make to all of our staff, and it's something that we say to all of them, and I say to all of them when when you know um, when people start here is is I sit with with every every intake we do, and and it's something I deliver very personally, and I like to look everyone in the eye and and say it, which is we. Firstly, we, we make the commitment that we want to make this the best place you ever work. And I'll come back to that in a sec. The, the other thing we say is that it's our commitment to not lose track of the individual. And we come by both these things, honestly, in terms of making it the best place you ever work. The tense is really important. It's not the best place you've ever worked. It is the best place you, you, you ever work. And so we're looking to the future as well. And what we're saying with that is you may not know now, but what the, the idea that I like, the thought experiment that excites me is that right now we have almost 400 people working for us. The majority of them are under the age of 30. 
they will probably work another 30 to 40 years, right? So in 30 to 40, well, maybe say 50 years time, there's a minimum of like 400 people who will be sitting around in an armchair, thinking back over their working life, and they get to pick out the, the best job that they had. Um, in the same way that when I used to speak to my grandfather, um, he would he would always recall a job somewhere in the middle of his career that was the one he was the most passionate about. You don't know it necessarily at the time, and that's okay. But but ultimately, there has to be a winner. I guess that's when I say the bit I get excited about is one of them has to stand out. One of them has to have been the best. And I just want that to be us. Like I that, that's just to me that's just super cool because like the fiber network stuff, like cool. It's hard to get excited about fiber. Um, and I don't expect people to. And, and as I've said many times, if we don't build it, eventually someone else would anyway. Um, but what is easy to get excited about is the impact on hundreds of people's lives. And then when they go on, the, the management things they learn here and the behaviors they learn here and the way to give feedback and the safety and the openness, those are all things that they'll take into the restaurant they open, the team that they run in another business or you know, the company they start or whatever it might be. Um, maybe the way that they raise their children, I don't know. Um, and, you know, I'm not saying that we will define it for them, but in that sort of butterfly effect way, you, it's unavoidable that we will in some way influence their future behavior. So let's at least make sure it's a positive influence. Even if it's small, let's make it positive. And, and for me, that's, that's a huge, huge motivator. And, and I really love that. And so now I'm going to get granular. And as you say, there's thousands of things, no silver bullet. But if you were to give me a few examples of things that your employees say make this the best place to work that they've ever worked give me two or three uh examples of that sure so firstly like as i said it's it's we have this commitment to not lose track of the individual um and that's that that manifests in all sorts of places so you know the, the constant challenge to our people and culture team are and our, our sort of what would traditionally map to an hr team right is um, is to, to make policies as simple and as broad as possible. You know, not to, uh, a little bit like where, where certain governments have said we need to strike, we have a target of a number of redundant laws we want to strike off the books, right? Um, is saying actually doing your job well is making the policies more fundamental, closer to being like 10 commandments and less like being 10,000 little individual rules and exceptions to rules. Um, and what that does is it affords you a ton of freedom as well, because then when it, what it means is when the individual presents, because I tell you, you know, I'm sure you've you heard this before, but if one, if there's one thing humans are really good at, it's, it's providing you with a, a circumstance you failed to predict. Right. And I think, you know, the best tools to have then are the most flexible ones. Um, and not to say, oh, we need to go and think about this and derive a new rule or a new standard or a new approach. So just as one example. Um, you know, we, we operate within some interesting confines around what the government requires us to do on parenting leave or what you might call maternity leave. Um, so we, we sort of work around that. And we go, okay, well, we have to have some policy. But then what we do, and we sort of write underneath it very clearly, is like, this is a starting point. And at the point that you, have, you expect to engage with this policy, come speak to us. And then what we're going to do is customize this for you. We're going to create a personal approach for your specific situation because when we ask people in the business okay but do you think it's equivalent or fair that if you have one child or twins you should have the same same benefits or if you have a disabled child should it be the same as the person who doesn't have a disabled child do you think that that person deserves or should have or it's fair that they should be afforded a little bit more flexibility to help deal with it and everyone everyone goes yes right we, they should and you go cool the policy says and the government says no. So, you know, immediately there you can see some benefits in, in sort of just thinking about it a little bit differently. Mm. But, but other concrete things, um, I'm really proud that the team sort of poked me with a stick and I stood up and, and announced period days a couple of years ago to the company. Um, we have uh, the highest proportion of women operating in the field of anyone in our sector. Um, uh, more than... Uh, certainly more than one in three it's around uh, workers uh, and these are people you know this is these are our teams that are actually out in high vis in the streets installing cables uh, doing you know really tough work 
um, and it's just not accounted for. The, the tools that they use were designed for men. The safety equipment was designed for men. We've had to do a lot of work to get PPE. Um, but also, you just get the problem that, that um, you know, for many women, there are, there are one or two days a month where this is not a comfortable working environment. And so working around that, but the thing that always concerned me, and there's great books like Invisible Women that sort of highlight some of these issues, um, is, is that uh, if they end up taking a sick day, this can prejudice their employment. You know, then when you get to this point of sort of looking at their promotion, you go, well, Sarah does have a lot of sick days. And really, this isn't fair because the nature of the work has prejudiced her ability then to, to sort of pursue her career. So, um, so we're very careful there to say, okay, there's no questions asked. Like that's a facility. Um, you can you can take a period day, um, or you can have a conversation with the manager, and we'll try and find some work in the office or a more comfortable environment. There's a there's a sliding scale, right? Um, so there are, there are things like that that we do. Uh, we've done a lot around. Uh, I mean, a lot of it tends to be sort of these these HR things, really, but things like. Um, scheduling a lot of work during Ramadan so that our Muslim workers can start an early shift so that we're not asking them to work the hardest part of the day when they're fasting. Um, to my knowledge, no other telecoms company has ever done this in the UK. Um, so we, we really work hard to sort of fit around people. And I think that understanding helps drive the sense of safety and then this encourages more feedback and, and so on. Mm, I I love what you're talking about. And I realize that that takes a lot of time and effort to show that kind of compassion and care. And and the word I heard was fairness. And it's probably one of your principles. Is it fair? And of course, uh, people have different interpretations of what they consider fair and what someone else considers fair, but generally not. Uh, I don't know what your view is on you know, when you use it, the British language is full of lots of things like this. You know, loyalty is important. Okay, yes, yes, loyalty. <laughs> loyalty to a principal, loyalty to your family, loyalty to a country, loyalty to the firm, loyalty to, uh, you know, a a value. I don't know. Any any thoughts? No, I, actually, I I think I've I've found, I don't know, I always find these things just unbelievably heartwarming because what comes out of it are you know, you find that people are broadly, they do agree on what's fair. Um, and if they don't, um, it's usually for want of information. You know, yeah. it's a disparity of information and then it's a, then it's a great exercise in closing some other gaps of understanding in, in your organization. You know, it's one of the challenges of being um, a really diverse organization is that we talk about this a lot, actually, because we're, because we're so diverse, one of the challenges we have is it's remarkably easy to cause offense. Right. And, and it's not, and not deliberately, you know, there's at the far end of the spectrum, you've got Donald Trump's locker room banter, which is clearly was going to be offensive to anyone that heard it, that, you know, wasn't in the room with him and probably should have been to the people who were in the room with him. But at the other end of the spectrum, you just have a good example. Um, you know, we have some very, very well paid people who are extremely senior and very experienced and, and highly technical in say software development roles. And then they are working along they are providing the tools that are on the mobile device that the person in the field is using who earns a sixth of their salary. And they're working together because they're building the tool for this person to use. How insensitive is it if they now, as they walk off, they're having a conversation about their, you know, ordering their new Land Rover? You know, it's it's the, the car costs more than four years rent or something for, for this mm. other person. You know what I mean? It's and so that's not that's not sort of bigotry or, 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 or um, you know, racism or, or sexism, but it's just an insensitivity to um, understanding your own personal wealth and how that mm. might be difficult for someone else. And so this is the sort of thing I mean, there's a lot of these sorts of things where it's so easy to trip up in a diverse organization. Um, and and in many ways, that's great because what it does is it just expands understanding. It means people end up being really well practiced at apologizing for stuff and being really sensitive and like trying to be much more aware of, of the people around them and, and, and how to behave appropriately. Yeah, and I agree. And uh, you read widely uh, the, the Thinking Environment by Nancy Klein. Her latest book is The Promise That Changes Everything. I Won't Interrupt You. And it's, it's a really good listen. And Nancy has been a mentor to my wife and myself and we find that the work we do one of the 
is it's almost like an operating system that many organizations can have the way they can listen to each other and everybody gets the chance to be heard for 30 seconds they're in around the, the group but whatever it might be the the way you are and the way that everybody has a, a birthright to dignity in the way you treat them uh not respect respect can be earned and lost but dignity everybody's born with it whoever you are whatever background makes a huge difference we're just coming towards the end of our time, Tim, and there's so much that we could have discussed and we've gone completely free form, nothing to do with the questions you and I originally planned, which <laughs> I, I've thoroughly enjoyed. But let's have a, a little chat about teams. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you find there's an individual in a team or a team has gone toxic, I think is the word, perhaps it's just not working how it is. You've already used the favorite term of mine that we help people find their happiness elsewhere because they're clearly not happy. And, and it is interesting that uh, I think back to the original point we were discussing about where there's a lack of trust. And in your early days, how you felt you couldn't really open and be fully transparent and vulnerable because you didn't feel like you trusted those people because they might gossip or mm -hmm. talk about you behind your back and scoring points at the water cooler. What do you do when you've, what else do you do? You've already talked about this. When you've got an individual or a team that's gone a bit bad. That's a good question. Um, on some levels, it happens a lot, I think. Um, I, I, I suppose it comes back to the thing we sort of talked about at the beginning, which is about criticizing the task and not the person. I think for me, one of the first exercises is to understand did we fail at the task or did we you know or is this the wrong person um and actually that that is that's a really important distinction to make i think as a leader is is to understand you know in the act and when you're providing feedback and when you're trying to get the job done always criticize the task and not the person right that's 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 a given but there has to be a reckoning at some point where you know you go actually maybe maybe you're the wrong person for this and and um, and you have to be able to do that, but you have to do it dispassionately and probably in isolation and certainly not to someone's face, I think, when you're trying to figure this stuff out. Um, but but it's I, the trouble is it's, it's myriad reasons, right, when you, when you sort of look at, I think I've got quite good at deconstructing the failures and sort of looking at the teams and sort of and analyzing that. There are those things that you can sort of intuit. Um, I think experience starts to teach you to spot these things early. And so maybe you're attuned to it and, and, and then it makes it easier to sort of then find the evidence. But um, I don't think I have a, a particularly direct playbook on it. Often, mm. I would say, actually, um, it's about providing a subtle input to the the team leader because increasingly it's not my team it's run by someone else and so increasingly actually for me the thing to figure out um and, and i was having this conversation actually a couple of hours ago um it's 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 pausing for long enough to figure out what is the one tiny little input the nudge i provide that fixes this and it's usually a comment to to the the, the team owner hmm. no i think it's a good way and it comes back to once again long before that the power of listening and to listen to ignite people's thinking and picking up the unsaid in many conversations what's what's missing here and and somatically what you're picking up yourself something's mm -hmm. The Germans call it fingerspitzgefühl, fingertip feel. Well, something's yeah. not quite right. Uh, and, and, and you are unusual, I will say, in many ways, in a lovely positive way, I'll quickly say, Tim, in that you know, I work with a lot of software engineers and tech companies uh, around the world. My favorite one in Seattle is, is Remitly Global. Their CEO, Matt Oppenheimer, have a listen to his podcast. Just, just an inspiration to the people he leads and 11 years to create a, a unicorn and and then a NASDAQ listed company. But they really care about the customers and they care about the people. But that feel of knowing when something's not quite right to then ask the one question, what's yep. the one thing? Or if we did nothing else, what's the one thing we must do? Um, which I think is very useful. You read a lot. Um, my, my penultimate question is about books. Okay. Tim, if you were to recommend a book 
that you think the uh, the audience in these 125 countries, well, there were 100,000 people listening to this, they'd find it useful about their own leadership with some tips and techniques. Do you have a, a book you'd recommend which might be a little Just, unusual? So, I mean, no pressure there, right? But no, I think no. the... Um, uh, I'm sure it's come up on on your podcast before, but one that I seem to keep coming back to is turn the ship around. Mm -hmm. um, and I think perhaps because it speaks most to my ambitions of, of leadership, um, you know, I think I sort of hinted at it there, but, but for me, good leadership is, good leadership should almost go unnoticed. You know, if you're doing it well, and it's almost the paradox of being a very good CEO, I think is, is you know you strive to be you should strive i think to be an unnecessary part you know I, the way i like to describe it is as i just did these little course corrections the ship is heading in this direction um and really for me the evidence that i've built a functioning business and a functioning team and everything works the evidence is that i'm hands off i'm completely hands off and it's sailing itself and the trick is, you know, it's it's very easy, actually. I think I think we massively overestimate uh, this one. It's it's actually very easy to just reach in, put your hand on the helm, and fix something. the The trick is taking that extra moment to figure out what is the absolute minimum sort of fingertip input that you provide somewhere to the team. Often in this sort of weird butterfly effect sort of way, all the way over here that little input that just course corrects, and then also the patience that it doesn't immediately course correct, it just nudges things back in the right direction. And then the patience to wait and watch it evolve and see it happen. And for me, that's that's part of what that book, I think, starts to get to. Yeah, well, I'd recommend you and, and listeners go back to Captain David Marquet, who wrote that book, and also Leadership as Language. He's one of our guests and have a listen to his his podcast with me because he has been a huge impact on me obviously with a if you look at the back of the room you'll see my father's naval cap so that matters and also my father was a naval aviator you might see a picture or two of him on an american plane and we had recently about three episodes ago admiral mike manazir who was the captain of the uss nimitz now if you want a big wow, ship okay. with five thousand yeah. people on board it and he was a Top Gun pilot. When they did the Top Gun filming of version one with Tom Cruise, he was he and his colleagues were going through Top Gun training to become some of the best Amazing. pilots. And, and he talks about how much you get involved or how little you get involved and, and, and letting somebody think for themselves. But there is a moment sometimes when you do need to get involved. You shouldn't just always stay back. There is occasions. But think of the consequences on the other person when you do so. That. Okay, uh, we're going to end now with your two-minute top leadership tip. So if you'd kindly, Tim, introduce yourself as you did at the very beginning and explain what your business for boss does and then give us your top leadership practical tip and then uh, we'll wrap up at that stage. Sure. So I've probably shown my hand a little bit on that one, haven't I? But um, right. but, but I think um, I'm, I'm Tim Kreswick. I'm the CEO and founder of Forboss. We are a, a telecoms and fiber company. We've built a extremely high bandwidth um, brand new fiber network for businesses in central London. Over 500 kilometers of cable deployed in the in the last uh, few years. We're a very diverse employer. We're extremely people focused. Uh, my two minute leadership tip uh, is really about um, creating the environments and the safety for people uh, to uh, to really learn their own growth and their own leadership. And and for me, what that what that's about is um, figuring out how to provide minimal inputs to teams, how, how to understand how to provide tiny, tiny course corrections to teams uh, to produce the outputs that I want and to, and to really have the patience to then watch those things evolve. Um, it's extremely easy to, to reach in and, and want to take control of the situation. It's extremely easy to want to just be very prescriptive and, and tell people how to solve the problems that they're trying to solve. Um, and, and I think one of the the, the best uh, marks of good leadership is is that it, it almost goes unnoticed. Uh, for me, the leader I aspire to be is the one where no one quite understands what I'm actually doing. Um, 
and uh, and and in fact, what they admire is the company you've built, and not and not and not the leadership that, that got you there. Um, and when people are scratching their heads trying to figure out um, how you did it, then then I think you've then I think you've really nailed it. So for me, um, I'm I'm always figuring out how to do less um, in order to enable enable my teams to do more. Mm. Well, look, uh, Tim Creswick, it's been brilliant having you on the podcast. I'm reminded of the final quote from our favorite author in Turn the Ship Around. And he he talks about take control and create followers, give control and create leaders. And I, I always love that little difference. But thank you very much for being our guest on the podcast. And I wish you and your colleagues at Forbos every success. Brilliant. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.